So there have been some questions coming up today along the lines of um, what are we doing here? <laughs> we heard a little bit of that in the hall this morning with the, the questions at the instruction period and also some more questions along those lines in the groups today, which is uh, very natural, especially at this point in the retreat as we start to feel um, the force field of the end of the retreat coming and there start to be more thoughts about, well, okay, I've had this experience, now what am I going to do with it? Where is it leading? So that's, that's perfectly natural to begin to think about or to continue to think about, you know, what's the big picture? What's the context for, for what we do here? And it may be that you've heard different kinds of things here than you have in wherever you've been practicing or studying before, if you haven't been on retreat here. Um, or it may be that, you know, if you've been on retreat before it, and you come regularly, um, there are certain kinds of teachings that you hear here that you don't hear at your local sitting group or whatever it might be. Um, it's, it's such an interesting time for Western Buddhism where it's, it's proliferating like crazy, you know, especially the mindfulness practices just seems like it's suddenly everywhere. You know, there's mindfulness for, for stress reduction and for physical health and for mental health um, as a tool to help us live more fully, help us in our relationships, our careers, um, all sorts of, of stuff, all sorts of different applications of this basic practice, um, which I think is wonderful. And it's, it's really, if you look at the the spread of Buddhism around the world, this is what tends to happen when the, the teachings hit a new culture, say in the move to China or Japan or other different countries, is that uh, you know it hits and it takes a little while to take root and then suddenly it proliferates through the culture. So that's, that's starting to happen here now in our culture and it's no longer uh, a weird thing <laughs> to be meditating the way that it was when a lot of us started. <laughs> But it may be that uh, perhaps this is the first time that you've heard someone talk about the possibility of liberation or awakening or enlightenment uh, with a straight face, (laughs) unselfconsciously. And, you know, in part we see it as our responsibility, as spokesmodels for the Dharma, (laughs) to, to really lay it all out for you. You know, even if this, this is your very first retreat, to, to lay out for you, as we understand it, what the direction of the practice is, what the Buddha said the direction of the practice is, what our teachers have conveyed to us the direction of the practice is, and what the full scope and the full potential of what we're learning here, what we're practicing is here. And then, of course, it's up to us to decide what our own particular aspiration is, where we want to set our course. As I mentioned this morning, uh, you absolutely do not have to believe everything that we say. Um, You're welcome to come here and practice regardless of your beliefs, regardless of your views. Um, And we hope that you do. You know, come here and continue to pursue your practice, even if you don't uh, buy into everything that we say. And it's honestly fine to just uh, ignore (laughs) or set aside, you know, pretty much everything that we say, uh, as long as we just do the practice, 
to see where it leads us, see what the truth of it is. Uh, There was a yogi in one group today, and I hope they don't mind me mentioning this. I thought it was a really good point that um, there's this recent research that seems to show that a certain amount of delusion is actually conducive to happiness. Has anybody read these, these, this research? There's been a, like, a little flurry of articles in the pop psychology uh, uh, distribution channels around this. Um, so some research indicating that those with, with a healthy capacity for a certain amount of self-deception uh, report being happier, seem more functional in the world, that there's actually some benefits to that. Um, so you could look into that if you're, you're curious about that. Um, but I hate to break it to you. Uh, if you're here, you're probably already not a very good candidate for that particular type of happiness. <laughs> if you're here, um, you probably already have a little bit too much of a clue as to what the real story is to be able to completely buy into that approach to happiness. There's this great um, quote from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan master from the 20th century, who was himself a very interesting character, quite controversial, uh, to say the least. Um, But this is a great teaching from him. He said, My advice to you is not to undertake the spiritual path. It is too difficult, too long, and too demanding. I suggest you ask for your money back and go home. This is not a picnic. (laughs) It is really going to ask everything of you. So it's best not to begin. However, however, if you do begin, it's best to finish. (laughs) So once we've gotten enough of an inkling (laughs) as to what's really going on in life to get here, we're kind of stuck, usually. (laughs) Though it may take a long time for it to, to develop. Our understanding of happiness, of this this core idea of happiness in Western psychology, uh, even just what's meant by that word happiness, uh, which is so vague, is still really quite primitive. It's it's way beyond the scope of this retreat, but again, something that you could look into, um, that the, the teachings within the Buddhist psychology, which there's this whole body of teachings on the operation of the mind called the the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, um, and the understanding of happiness and really the whole scope of human emotions that is kind of laid out there and presented is is so much more sophisticated than anything we've arrived at yet in the West. Uh, So there are uh, differentiations between various types of happiness that arise from different causes and are experienced in different ways and that give us different kinds of gratification a whole map, whole map of the human psyche, which really we're uh, recreating that map or mapping that same terrain for ourselves through this practice. We're getting intimately familiar with what is the terrain uh, of our emotional life and how does it operate. So as we become more aware and we pay more attention to our experience in a very intimate and very detailed way here on retreat, Um, and also just in a more general way, out in our ordinary lives, we come to see that this is really true, that there are different varieties of what we might call happiness, 
or satisfaction, gratification. There's different ways of feeling good. That's not just a philosophical distinction. There's different things that we might call happiness from different points of view. And they're not all created equal. They're different. So we started to get into this morning uh, talking about uh, what for most of us, most of us meaning most of humanity, (laughs) not just most of us, but for, for most human beings, what is our default strategy for happiness, which is really hardwired into us. There's nothing personal about it all. This is the strategy that we will pick up and run with unless something happens in our lives to really introduce us to a different alternative. And that's just simply to seek happiness through pleasure, through what the Buddha called sense pleasure. And this may feel a little odd at first when we hear this teaching, you know, that we're in pursuit of sense pleasure. Because most of us here probably don't consider ourselves blatant hedonists. Again, usually if we've ended up here, you know, <laughs> usually this is not what we're in pursuit of here. Um, we don't tend, those of us that come to this path, to feel like we're just living for pleasure from day to day. Though, although for many of us, I know I can relate to this, I've had a stretch in my life, many of us had, when we were very pleasure-oriented, especially when we're young, right? <laughs> this tends to be uh, something we fall into. But by pleasure, I mean having things the way that we like them having pleasant experiences. This is what most of us tend to think of as happiness, whether we realize it or not. We can drape it in more sophisticated ideas, more sophisticated language. Um, But when we get right down to it, that's really what it's about for most of us. That's one of the things that we're learning here, that what we mean by happiness, what we think of as happiness, is really having more and more and better and better pleasant moments. And unhappiness is conversely having less and less, you know, quality and quantity of pleasant moments or more and more stronger and stronger unpleasant moments. And the Buddha described this kind of happiness, the happiness that comes from sense pleasure, as just ordinary mundane happiness. This is the happiness of pleasant sense experiences. And that doesn't mean just pleasant physical experiences. So when we say senses uh, in the Dharma, we don't just mean the physical senses. It includes those. But it also includes uh, the mind and everything that can be experienced through the mind. The mind is considered what we call a sense door or a sense organ. That's another way of taking in stimulation, of being stimulated by the world. So most of us wouldn't say that you know, our lives revolve around getting pleasant physical experiences. Though when we come on retreat, it can be a big wake-up call, just how central that is in our lives. Some of us have a lot of body dukkha, and, and we know. We know what a big deal that can be. Those of us that our bodies don't bother us so much, it can be really a shock when we sit down on the cushion and see how much of our energy, how much of our attention, how much of our effort goes into trying to make the body comfortable, trying to keep the body comfortable, right? We get to see really, oh, that's a big deal in our lives. And the same thing's going on outside retreat, just we don't usually notice it. So the happiness of pleasant sense experience includes uh, keeping the body comfortable, feeling pleased or okay or nice in the body in various ways. 
And it also includes the gratification of the mind, that mind door. So having pleasant mental experiences. Um, And this can be a little bit less intuitive. We don't tend to think of those things in Western psychology as sense experience. Enjoying the mind, enjoying the experiences that the mind can give us. Uh, Enjoying a good book, a good movie, music, art, enjoying a conversation with a friend or somebody we love having that interpersonal interaction and all the mental stimulation that it gives us, the stimulation of the emotions, enjoying the pleasant emotions that can arise from interacting again with people or experiences that we enjoy. So when we bring that piece into it, um, especially this can be really interesting outside of retreat to check out as well. Uh, It can become a really interesting and also uh, horrifying (laughs) realization when we bring the mental piece of it in, combined with the physical piece, how much of our lives revolves around trying to get and hold on to pleasant sensory experiences and get away from, get rid of unpleasant ones. This is something that I work with a lot in my uh, life as a parent. And this is something that's really, I feel really beneficial to check out in all of our uh, intimate relationships. I I would really encourage this practice is to really be aware of during the times when we're interacting with someone we love or a being we love, it doesn't have to be a human, check out, you know, what is the gratification that we're getting out of it? You know, during those times uh, with my children that I find really gratifying, if I look and pay attention, what am I, why does it feel so good? <laughs> I like looking at them. It's pleasant to look at them. I like hearing them. I like the sound of their voices. I like touching them. I like the way they feel. I like smelling them, <laughs> you know, I like kissing them. Uh, I like talking to them and the, the, the things that they say and the ideas they arouse in my mind. I like the emotions that interacting with them arises, arouses in me. It's a, a very sensual experience, a sensory experience. And for those of us you know, that haven't really looked, and in conventional terms, that's what we call love. But really, that has nothing to, <laughs> none of that has anything to do with love. That's all about my own gratification, right? What does love, true love, actually look like? That can be um, a hard one to to learn. What does real love actually feel like? We start to get a sense of that through the loving-kindness practice. True love actually looks very different. It's not about me feeling good. It's about the genuine caring for them, for the other being, really wanting for their well-being. It's It's an outward energy rather than this taking in energy. So this can be really interesting to explore if we check it out. Huge amount of our lives revolve around seeking out sense pleasure, the subtle and the gross. So our strategy for happiness in life, unless something happens again to to deflect us to a different course, will naturally revolve around securing pleasure and removing away from pain which is, again, you know, wired into us, wired into all living things. And we may call this plan A. You know, this is the default approach. This is the direction that the stream goes. We were talking this morning about the stream of culture and conditioning and civilization um, and how this practice really goes against the stream. This is one of the big ways in which it does. You know, the stream is really just you know, driving us along on this approach to life. It's easy to follow this approach to life, because everything in our culture, everything around us is, you know, organized in this pursuit, right? 
especially here in this particular culture in the West. It's totally oriented towards gratification, gratification of desire, gratification of the senses. So I, I read you know, those pop psychology articles about that research, that um, a certain amount of delusion can be healthy. And I'm not an expert in this field at all. I have no psychological background, no psychological training. I'm an engineer by training. <laughs> it's not my field at all. Um, and yet, I am skeptical, <laughs> just because I used to be that person. Um, and many of us may be able to relate to this. Uh, I came to practice not out of any great tragedy at my, in my life, uh, quite the opposite, actually. I came to practice at a time uh, when everything was going great. Uh, I was young, and I had kind of, um, I was newly fledged from, from my parents' house, out on my own for the first time, and I had kind of checked off all the boxes. <laughs> you know, I'd done everything I was supposed to do. I'd completed the list. You know, I'd, I'd gotten the education in a certain way, a certain degree of achievement. I'd gotten the career, again, with a certain degree of, you know, financial reward and prestige. Uh, I had a fiancé, you know, I had a ring on my finger. <laughs> this is when I first started coming here. Um, so, you know, it was, everything was going the way it was supposed to. <laughs> and yet, you know, I had that little inkling also, you know, that's brought all of us here. But uh, that wasn't enough. That wasn't quite it. Something was missing. You know, if somebody had come up to me and asked me, you know, are you happy? I would have said, oh, yeah, everything's going great. I got everything I need in life. But I guess I was missing that ability to completely <laughs> deceive myself. I couldn't quite completely deceive myself. But that was really all I wanted out of life, that that was enough. I kept having this gnawing feeling that there has to be something more. There's got to be more to it than this. And so I ended up here. Of course, we have to be blessed with um, a pretty charmed life in order to be, to be able to pull off plan A with any degree of success. You know, we have to have pretty comfortable, pretty privileged circumstances in the first place to even be able to pull off that deception. Although, for sure, the, the human capacity for self-deception is pretty staggering sometimes. Uh, uh, I know I can relate to this, uh, you know, we sometimes call my mother the, the queen of denial, <laughs> and it's not because she lives in Egypt. Um, <laughs> so that is, you know, that's, again, a, a coping mechanism that's hardwired into us. So yeah, it has its utility. Um, but some of us have, have situations, have experiences in life that are real dukkha-dukkha, you know, real serious suffering that it's unable, we're unable to just turn, to, turn a blind eye to. And that brings many of us to practice that as well. Yes, a lot of you have reported that, you know, having either some uh, kind of temporary or permanent condition in your life that's just really difficult, really challenging. And so that can also bring us to practice, really trying to find some way to find peace, within the difficult conditions. There's a great quote from Edward R. Murrow that you may have heard that says, anyone who isn't confused doesn't really understand the situation. (laughs) (laughs) So the problem, of course, with plan A, as Annie was speaking about, is that it puts us into this endless round of seeking, the round of samsara, uh, just constantly running towards pleasure, running away from pain, which is inherently unsettling, just because it involves this constant chase, chase, run, run. 
there's no security in that. There's no stability. There's no calm in that. If we don't get what we want, then we're unhappy. If we do get what we want, it changes, you know. And we never know what's coming around the wheel next. We don't. We have no way of knowing. We're really vulnerable. The situation is summed up in a teaching uh, from the Buddha called the vicissitudes of life. If you've heard of this one before, they're said to be eight vicissitudes. I love that word, vicissitudes, vicissitudes of life. So the eight vicissitudes of life are gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, and pain and pleasure. And life is always a mix of these. This is what the Buddha taught, and we can look and see in our own experience whether this is true or not. There's always some mix of this going on in our lives. Given our choice, you know, we would probably prefer to experience just half of these conditions. <laughs> uh, that's the, the, the desire for, for pleasure, for pleasant experience. We'd like to take the gain, the pleasure, the praise, the fame, and leave the loss, blame, uh, pain, and disrepute for somebody else to pick up. But if we think about it, we can see that that's obviously not an option. And do we know anybody, even the people we admire most in the world, that is only praised and never blamed? Anybody that only experiences pleasure and never gets pain? You know, the same with all of them. Uh, it's just not the way that the world operates. The, the balance of those changes, you know, some of us may be blessed with a greater proportion of one than the other at times, but then it can change on a dime too. And some we find everything going south. There are times, you know, for a lot of us when the the scales are kind of tipped in our favor and we've got a disproportionate amount of the ones that we like. So that can be a little uh, confusing. That can mislead us into thinking that somehow it's possible to get the scales to tip all the way to the side (laughs) where we've only got the good ones, the, the, the ones we don't like disappear. But that doesn't happen. It goes back and forth. So doing this practice, the process of insight, the gaining of wisdom, uh, the awakening of the heart, whatever we want to call our spiritual path, what we're doing here, is not going to change that basic equation. And recognizing that is part of, again, the maturing of the practice, the maturing of our understanding, that this is a a non-negotiable feature of life. We can't please all the people all the time. We can't... uh, dramatically change the nature of our bodies so they only experience pleasure. It's not going to happen. It's not the nature of reality. So this is one of the the really radical aspects of the Dharma. Um, This is not a path that promises ever-increasing bliss, if you haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) If that's what you're looking for, you're going to have to look elsewhere or maybe cultivate your capacity for denial. This is not what we're doing here. And most of us are mature enough to get that intellectually. But when I'm really honest with myself, when I really look into my heart, I see that still I cherish the hope. You know? uh, not, not in the mind. Again, intellectually, I, I don't believe that it's possible to change that. But if I look in the heart, there's still this wish, oh, maybe there's a loophole somewhere. You know? And definitely when I first came to this practice, I really was hoping this might be a loophole. Like maybe if I do this mindfulness thing, if I you know, cultivate a spiritual practice, there's some way to like always 
feel good that's like different from what I'm used to, but you know, really it's still, you know, the mind goes through all these these mental gymnastics. It's it's that that hope dies hard. <laughs> but if we tie our sense of happiness and well-being to having things the way that we like them, to the enjoyment of the four vicissitudes that we like, uh, to the enjoyment of pleasant pleasant sense experiences, then we are also tying ourselves to disappointment because it will not be so. We're going to be vulnerable to the constant waves of changing conditions. It's just the way that things are. So this is one view of samsara, this being stuck on the roller coaster of constantly changing conditions, constantly changing vicissitudes. And having our happiness and sense of well-being tied to that roller coaster tied to experiences, to conditions that are just inherently unstable. Our world becomes very small when we live this way, just hanging on, trying to to keep some semblance of control, trying to keep things the way that we want them, getting caught up and always trying to arrange things. Okay, now I got to fix that, and then there's this thing over here I got to fix, and that one I got to tidy up, that's not working right, right? It's one project after another. This is how we live our lives. And that really limits our ability to see clearly and to be the compassionate beings that we want to be because we're so wrapped up in fixing my problems. The Buddha said that the solution to being on this kind of roller coaster um, is not to try to hang on to the good conditions, not to try to stop the roller coaster, but just to to kind of give up on plan A, (laughs) to let go of that pipe dream, to stop struggling with the constant change, stop struggling with the vicissitudes of life, stop struggling with how things actually are. So for folks that uh, are not on this path, the, the, the plan A is when, that when they get gain and good repute, praise and pleasure, they feel happy. And when they get loss or ill repute, blame, pain, they feel sad. But the Buddha said that it's possible to get any of these things, any of the eight, the good or the bad, and to just feel equanimity, to feel equanimous, to feel at peace, not reacting to what's come up, but just holding it with equanimity. So then there's no more need to run around and around on that chase, on that constant sequence of projects. Whatever comes is okay. And the Buddha said that this kind of equanimity is actually the greatest happiness. This is the greatest happiness that's available to us. There's a story from the the Taoist tradition, which has also been translated into the Zen tradition. And actually, it's around a lot. You may have heard some version of this um, about an old farmer uh, with one son. And one day, his horse ran away, who he depended on to be able to pull the plow and do his work. And when his neighbors heard about this, they all kind of gathered around and said, tut tut, you know, what a shame. This is horrible. You know, you've had such bad luck. And the farmer said, maybe, we'll see. But then the the next morning, the horse horse returned. It had had a nice time roaming around out in the the mountains. It was rejuvenated from munching on all the, you know, the healthy mountain grass. (laughs) And it brought with it three wild horses that it had met out in the wilderness. and brought them back to the farmer's pen, at which the neighbors, you know, were very surprised. Again, they gathered around and said, ah, oh, what good fortune you've had. This is, this is really lucky. 
And the farmer said, well, maybe, we'll see. <laughs> then the next day, the farmer's son, his only son, uh, was very interested in the wild horses and tried to, to get on one and ride it and break it. Um, but he was thrown and he broke his leg. And again, the farmer was really dependent on his son to help with the farm work. It was his only son. Uh, so again, the neighbors came around, tut tut, you know, <laughs> what a shame, what bad luck you're having. And the farmer said, well, maybe, we'll see. Then the day after that, uh, the army marched through the village and recruited all of the young men in the village. And they were all taken off to war and killed. None of the young men returned from the war. Which the, the neighbors again, you know, gathered around and said, oh, boy, were you lucky that your son broke, broke his leg. You know, isn't that great how that turned out? And the farmer said, well, maybe. You know, so you can add your next chapter <laughs> to the story. You get the kind of the gist of it. Um, you know, this was a very enlightened farmer. He'd obviously been doing a lot of Zen practice. <laughs> so with that attitude of equanimity, we're not just batted around by everything that comes our way. You know, we don't ride a roller coaster with all the highs and the lows that inevitably come our way. And that the, um, what information is communicated about the Buddha's life story and the teachings I find really interesting because they really illustrate this. So as, as Carrie mentioned, I think, the Buddha famously had very severe back pain late in his life. You know, you can only imagine he was enlightened at 35. He died at 80, so he spent 45 years trudging around you know, mostly on foot through northern India from one end to the other, up into the mountains, down to the Ganges Valley. And, you know, it's hard on the body. The Buddha did not have any supernormal powers that his body was somewhat immune, you know, somehow immune to the, the ravages of time. By the end of his life, his back really hurt him. There's a, a number of suttas where he starts to give a discourse and then he, he hands, hands the mic over. <laughs> he says, I'm going to go lean against the pole for a while, you know, Sariputta or Ananda, you finish the talk. <laughs> Or we hear about, you know, the Buddha was in his hut uh, lying down, resting his back when such and such and such happened. You know, there's, there's a lot of that that pops up in the, the suttas. Uh, the Buddha died of food poisoning. Uh, he had stopped to, you know, take an, an alms meal from a, a poor man and he had served him something that had gone bad. And the Buddha continued it on his way. He was making a long trip by foot at the time, and he was out in the middle of nowhere. And he died in, uh, according to the, the descriptions, just racked by horrible pain in his, in his gut from this food poisoning that he'd gotten. Um, he was not immune to, you know, his reputation was, uh, he was well regarded by many. You know, he had many very devoted followers, but he also had many detractors. The, um, many people from the, the Brahmin caste, from the traditional uh, Hindu priesthood or the proto-Hindu religion that was around at the time really attacked him, um, were really uh, critical of what he was teaching. They said that he was uh, teaching nihilism and that he was leading people off on a, you know, the wrong path. Um, there were a lot of people that were critical for, of him for recruiting so many young men in their prime. He was taking uh, sons from fathers. He was taking husbands from wives. He was taking brothers from families. He got a lot of, of censure for that. And he also experienced loss. You know, that he had uh, good companions that were on the path with him for a long time. Sariputta, Mogalana, that were like his Dharma brothers. They both died before he did. Most of his family members died before he did. And he would say that, yes, I, I feel a loss at that. You know, I, it's, things are different now that those beings are gone from the world. So the Buddha was not in any way 
immune <laughs> to the vicissitudes of life. And I love that about the teachings. He was totally human, just like we are. But he was not disturbed. He was not perturbed by those you know, ups and downs of his life uh, in the ordinary sense. There was something in him that had changed. He'd touched into some deep spring of equanimity, of balance, of peace in the midst of all of that. So that it really, those things happened, and they may not have been what he wanted, but there's still a deep sense of okayness, <laughs> of, of well-being within the midst of all of them. Shantideva, a Mahayana uh, teacher from centuries ago, wrote, There are some that loathe me. Then why shall I, being praised, rejoice? There are some that praise me. Then why shall I brood over a blaming voice? You know, there's no reason to think that we're only going to get <laughs> what we like. We don't need to make such a big deal of it. So we've been talking really about this quality of heart, of equanimity, all along this, through this retreat. Some of you may have noticed that. <laughs> we haven't been mentioning it so explicitly. But for example, in, in the first talk that I gave, um, one of the traditional ways of cultivating an attitude of equanimity, which is so helpful uh, on the path and in everything, is through reflecting on causes and conditions, reflecting on the conditioned nature of things, getting that big picture. The things happen for a reason, they happen lawfully. And this helps us to, to take things less personally and to relax a little bit around them. The word um, that we translate as equanimity in the original Pali is upeka, upeka, which is a combination of uh, upa, which means uh, on or onto, and uh, ik, <laughs> which means to see. So it has this sense of, of looking upon, looking upon everything that comes evenly. But this is one, some of the Pali terms are really difficult to translate effectively into English. There's just not a word for it in English. But the word um, equanimity, I think the Buddha would actually be okay with that word as a translation. And, you know, that sense of uh, equa, you know, balance, uh, nimity of mind, nima, equanimity, balanced mind. That's very much the sense of it. The quality of equanimity, a classic simile for that is that um, like the feeling that we have uh, when, a, when a child, a beloved child, reaches adulthood. You know, we've cared for them, we've nurtured them, uh, we've given them all sorts of uh, things to help them to grow into adulthood, and then they go off and they do their own thing. <laughs> so in this uh, simile, you know, we're perfect parents. <laughs> we then, we wish them well, but we recognize that their lives are their own now. This is not our place to interfere. We feel balanced. We feel equanimous. It's important in practice to understand that insight, you know, when we come here to the Insight Meditation Society, insight actually comes from a place of balance, which may not be the idea that we come to the practice with. Uh, I came to the practice with the idea that insight comes from a place of bliss. So I kind of had this idea that I'd sit and I'd get very calm and tranquil and, you know, feel very blissful and then you know, deep insights would arise. That's, and interestingly, that's not actually how it happens. Not that we don't have times like that. And, you know, 
they serve their purpose. But the insight actually comes out of the balance of mind, the evenness of mind. That's the fertile ground that insight grows out of. So we get those first insights just seeing the chaos in the mind. Right? That's what gets us here. But even in that, there already has to be some budding equanimity. We have to be balanced enough just to be willing to sit there for however long and, and take that in. And then as we continue in the practice, we start to see that there's some method to the madness, that there's these predictable tracks that the mind runs down, uh, that certain experiences tend to arise in certain ways. They tend to lead one to, the, to another in a, in a lawful way. And that builds more equanimity. And we start to see that experience is unfolding in a way that is both lawful and impersonal, at least to some extent. And the more that we see that, then the less we get excited about it. <laughs> we start to see, okay, it just, this is how it is. It just kind of rolls along like this. It chugs along like this. And we don't get as excited about it as much of the time as we used to. It's been a little bit of of a theme on this retreat that Annie and uh, Carrie and I have been noticing that um, a number of of you old yogis, again, old, not chronological age, but those of you that have done a number of retreats, uh, some of you have done quite a few retreats, have been reporting that something along the lines of, you know, the same old stuff is just coming up. You know, X, Y, or Z, the sleepiness, the obsession, the craving, you know, the same kind of stuff is coming up that always comes up, but somehow something's different in relationship to it. This is really uh, lovely and inspiring to hear from you. And I wanted to repeat it because it's good for those of you that haven't been in a group with somebody that's reporting this to hear, that this actually does happen, that, that at some point things shift and we start to not get as worked up about it all. And, you know, again, a number of you have been saying, you know, it's so strange. It's just so much easier. <laughs> it's all the same stuff, but, but it's just so much easier and so much more easeful when there's not all that struggle in the mind with it. It's such a relief. So if we keep going, then equanimity continues to grow. Uh, we can stay with that changing flow of experiences longer uh, for more extended periods of time just observing with that upeka, that looking on, without constantly jumping in, without constantly jumping all over our experience with reactions, whether pro or con, with interpretations, with all sorts of drama. Um, That's what tends to happen at first, but with time, the, the observing becomes more relaxed, becomes more equanimous. And so we can just see more and more of the qualities, the characteristics of our experience we start to see what we call the uh, specific characteristics of experience, which is a little bit of a technical term. So that pain that had seemed so monolithic, so solid at the beginning of the retreat, we now start to see that there's all sorts of details in there. It's not just pain. You know, there's the burning and the throbbing and the stabbing and the unpleasant feeling, which is actually something else. And then the anger, that's something else. And the the despair and the hopelessness, those are other things. You know, we start to see what's actually going on in there. It's not just this gigantic, you know, monolith of pain. Or that that thought train that had seemed so overwhelming uh, that just carried us away every single time initially. Now we start to see that, oh, there's 
there's actually this thought and that goes to the next one and you know connects in a, in a logical way and it brings up this changing flow of emotions you know now there's sadness and now there's longing and you know now they're spacing out a little bit and then you know we can follow along with that so the greater uh, our equanimity becomes the stronger it becomes the more we can see and what's going on and this happens quite naturally this is a totally organic process so we don't need to make it happen we don't need to manufacture equanimity. In fact, we need to, to watch out for that. <laughs> That's one of the tricks that the mind tries to play on us is this tendency to force us, try to force ourselves into an equanimity that's just not there, not there yet. So we have to watch out for kind of trying to convince ourselves that something is okay when it's really not. If something's not okay, then we need to really fess up <laughs> and see that it's not okay. I'm not balanced with this right now. You know, the mind is totally reactive. I'm caught in craving. I'm caught in aversion. That's what's called for in the moments when that's what's happening. But then we can also recognize the moments when that's not happening. And that will happen more and more. Well, there's this thing coming up that's kind of difficult, but the mind's just, it's just kind of observing. It's just kind of looking on. There's some equanimity there. So as we continue to watch and see more and more of these specific characteristics, the details of what's happening in the mind, what's happening in the body, then at some point we'll begin to pick up on what we call the universal characteristics of experience. And this is usually where the practice starts to get more juicy, more interesting, um, and where we begin to feel more convinced about the truth of these teachings. This is where we start to have some confirmation, some validation of all those things that those people have been saying. So the mind begins to to connect the dots, just automatically. Again, this is not something that we make happen. So this isn't uh, that we develop some kind of belief or philosophy or ideas about what's happening, but something that we're actually observing directly in the present moment. We start to see um, what we call the three universal characteristics, Uh, the first of them being impermanence. So we start to see there was a thought there, and now it's gone. There was a feeling there, and now it's gone. There was a sensation in the body, and now it's gone. You know, so again, this is not an idea, but we're actually seeing moment by moment, that's going, that's going, that's going, that's going. You know, we're not tuned in so much to, to the specific quality of the experience, but we just see that, start to see that experience after experience after experience is disappearing. It's universal. It's a universal characteristic of all of these experiences. That they're all going. We start to get uh, the dukkha quality of experience. We just had that great experience. Now it's gone. Did it satisfy me? You know, it's just gone without a trace. It was nice while it's happening, but now it's gone. It didn't satisfy me. And another one, and another one. And we start to see the anatta characteristic of experience what we call selflessness or no-self, which can sound a little bit heady. But just this, this uh, characteristic of, of experiences that they do their own thing. They come, they go, they have their own <laughs> kind of agenda that they're following, and we have a certain amount of influence over them, but we're really not in control. This is not so, you know, uh, heady as it, it might sound at first. It's really just noticing this, that... that all of these experiences are just following their own nature, independent, 
or you know, not completely dependent on what we might wish. So all of this is gradually sinking in, and we usually don't recognize it. You know, we may have aha moments, uh, the mind may then think about it, but that's not the insight. The insight is getting this on this deep, intuitive level. And some of you are reporting this, that you're having moments like this in practice. So equanimity supports our practice and allows us to go deeper in the practice. And it's also the fruit of the practice. This is very interesting. It's the payoff. You know, it's this highest happiness that the Buddha spoke about. So there's the ordinary happiness of sense pleasure, which is plan A, the direction that the, st- the stream is flowing. There's the happiness of seclusion, which is something we might encounter here on retreat. And these are the pleasant meditative experiences that we might have. So this is when we usually feel like we're having a good sit (laughs) or we're having good practice. (laughs) What we usually mean by that is that we're having this kind of meditated pleasure, the pleasure of seclusion, when the, the annoying things, the irritating things that the mind usually gets up to start to quiet down. And it just feels quiet and it feels calm and it feels peaceful. The mind's not thinking so hard, thinking so much, and it can be just delightful. A sense of presence can be really nice, and it can totally derail our practice (laughs) because it's really nice. And we tend to get attached to that. We tend to, to want that. There can be this kind of transference once we get a real taste of that, like we switch from wanting the sense pleasures to wanting the meditative pleasures. <laughs> That's part of kind of weaning ourselves off from sense pleasures. It's a little bit of an intermediate step. So, you know, for a while, it can happen that for quite a long time, we're coming on retreat to get those kinds of experiences, or we're doing our sitting at home to get into that place. We can fall into thinking that that's what it's about. That's the kind of happiness that we're after. Eventually, at some point, it sinks into that that passes, just like some pleasure. It's also subject to, to changing conditions. We can't hang on to that more than anything else. So then we might start to, little by little, get a taste of the happiness of equanimity, of the mind that really starts to get that it's all changing, it's all going. Which ironically can be an acquired taste. Um, Often we come here or we enter into practice saying, thinking, believing that we want peace. Um, But that's different from actually wanting peace. (laughs) And something in us wants peace. Um, but it, you know, when we delve into it a little bit more, what we really want is these meditative pleasures. Uh, peace is something else. Peace has a different flavor to it. For a long time, when uh, I would hear these teachings on equanimity, I was really honestly baffled by it. Um, it just made no sense to me. The teachers would talk about this, like not being excited by pleasure and pain and having this, this even-mindedness, and it just sounded to me like numbness. It just sounded like a void. Um, it sounded like indifference or disengagement from life. Um, and I would think, why would anybody possibly want <laughs> to get into that kind of a state? Um, th- there's not a ready model in our culture for this kind of happiness. It's not something that we have a word for in this language. Um, so when we hear these teachings, we tend, the mind tends to go to, oh, it's some kind of aloofness or indifference. Um, so it's easy to misinterpret that way. So if, if, if the te- this teaching on equanimity sounds a little unappealing right now, I would encourage you to, to reserve judgment. 
the quality of equanimity is, is really hard to imagine until we actually get a good taste of it for ourselves. And um, even when it starts to first arise, we may not particularly notice it because it's very subtle. It's much lighter than we're used to, what we're used to thinking of as pleasure, which is this very intense experience. But it doesn't have anything to do with numbness or indifference. That's not an aspect of it at all. It's more uh, to do with openness and softness and receptivity. When I got my first um, kind of real taste of equanimity that I could actually identify, oh, yeah, that's equanimity, there was an image that came to me from my childhood, which that I, was that I had a friend that lived across the street who was um, from Germany. And her family had come over and brought a traditional feather bed with them. You know, so one of these big, you know, uh, fabric containers, you know, like, a big, like a big duvet, but stuffed with lots and lots and lots of feathers, you know, so you could, uh, we'd go in, it was in the, the guest room, and we'd go in and we'd fluff it up and we'd fluff it up and we'd fluff it up until it was like three feet tall, you know, it's like a huge pillow. And then we would stand on the footboard and we'd flop into the feather bed. <laughs> it was a nice time. But, um, <laughs> ah, childhood. But <laughs> when, I, when I got a taste of this experience of equanimity, first time I could really like look at it and see, oh yeah, that's what it is, it was totally reminiscent of that experience, like on, a, on an emotional level, on a mental level. This feeling of just dropping into total softness, total receptivity. You know, it, it, was, it was just a sublime happiness, a sublime peace. Um, not cold or aloof or indifferent or any of that, but just totally receptive. There was one teacher I met some years ago that uh, I only met him once for about 15 minutes, but he had a huge impact on me uh, just being in his presence. He was one of these Burmese masters that was said to be an arahant. It was kind of like gossip, there was a rumor, maybe this guy is an arahant. <laughs> but I got to spend 15 minutes in the room with him once before he died. And it, it was so reminiscent of that taste of equanimity, like you could feel it in the air around him. It was just this, this tidy little elderly guy, you know. But just being in his presence, you had the sense that there was just nothing in him that was struggling at all. There, he was totally open to you. There was nothing in him, that, that, not the slightest sense of resistance, like he was just butter. Like you could walk up to him and just stick your finger into him. It was just so soft. Um, so, you know, meeting somebody like that, uh, has, you know, makes a big impression. Unfortunately, not too many of us here quite are up to that standard yet, but it's good to, to testify. <laughs> I was talking about um, equanimity just recently uh, back in the group that I participated at home, which we do a lot these days. <laughs> we need a lot of teachings on equanimity these days. Um, but I was talking about... Uh, kind of the end of the longest retreat period that I've done in my life, which was in Burma many years ago before I had kids. And um, that was 11 and a half months. <laughs> I had a one-year visa, so I was in intensive retreat like this for 11 and a half months. And the quality of the mind towards the end of that time um, was, was really extraordinary. So I was talking about that quality of equanimity that grows out of doing that much practice, you know, how the resistance falls away and everything gets very soft and receptive and stops struggling. And I was describing just what, what the quality of that was like and I ended my talk. And afterwards, um, when a, a, a Dharma friend, an old yogi, came up to me and said, you know, 
you have to tell people that you were actually happy, happy when that was happening. <laughs> because they're not going to automatically connect those dots, you know. Describing is just soft and open and aware and present. Um, but, it, but it was. This, you know, when I think back on my, li- my life, that was a time of deepest happiness, without a doubt, that I've ever experienced. Nothing special going on, you know. Sitting in my little hut, listening to the rain on the roof, you know, walk, just walking, you know, through the swamp <laughs> over to the dining hall. Uh, you know, just nothing special, but so present, so open, so unresisting. So at times we get, you know, if we stay on this path, we get to get a taste of what that might be like to cultivate that strength of equanimity and the deep peace that comes from it. Steve Armstrong, our dear teacher, uh, for those of you that have, have sat with him, you know that he likes to end the day, uh, the closing reflection, by chanting this little verse. Anicca vata sankara, upatawaya damino, upajitva nirujanti, tasang upasumo suko, which means uh, it's the nature of experiences to, or all conditioned things are impermanent. It's their nature to arise and pass away. Uh, To live in harmony with this brings peace, which is the greatest happiness. So let's sit for a moment. All conditioned things are impermanent. It's their nature to arise and pass away. Living in harmony with this truth brings peace, which is the greatest happiness. So there's time for walking and then the sit to end the day together. <laughs> 